in Luke 9, 51 to 62, and as usual, you're going to find it helpful to have your own copy of Scripture open and to be reading along with me this morning. Before we do look at God's Word together, let me just briefly pray for us, and let us together ask the Lord to bless the ministry of His Word to us this morning. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do ask that you would send your word out with great clarity, with great accompanying wisdom by your spirit. We pray, our God, that you would convict us. We pray that you would correct us. We pray that you would instruct us. We pray that you would encourage us. And above all, we pray that you would build us up in Christ. Our God, we pray that you would make us to see him and to hear him with the eyes of faith and with the ears of faith. We pray, Lord Jesus, that even as you said in Scripture, now is the time when men will hear the voice of the Son of God and will live. We pray that you would make us to hear your voice and to live. And so please do the work that you alone can do by your Spirit through your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Luke 9, beginning in verse 51, and Luke now tells us, when the days drew near for him, that is Jesus, to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven and consume them? And he turned and rebuked them. And they went on to another village. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. To another, he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those who are at my home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Well, one of the first books that my parents gave me to read as a boy and to write a book review about, which I'm almost entirely sure I didn't write a book review about, nor do I think I actually read the book in full, was a book called Borden of Yale. Uh, It was about William Borden. He was an heir to the great Borden uh, franchise. We have Borden Milk today, and at the turn of the 20th century, William Borden left that. He gave up what was then millions of dollars what would today be billions of dollars. That's how wealthy his family was. And he gave it all up. And he said that he felt as though the Lord was calling him into the work of full-time gospel ministry. He was a very young man, and he was a very mature man for his age. And um, as all accounts go, Borden went to both Yale and then to Princeton in preparation. Some of his professors, one in particular, um, Uh, who's a very famous commentator, said that he was the most mature young man he had ever met in his life. In his very early 20s, he said, you would not have known the difference between me, and at that time he was an aging professor, 
and this young 20-something-year-old man who was so devoted to Christ. Well, Borden had decided that after he had studied at those two Ivy League schools and prepared for ministry, he would go overseas. He especially wanted to take the gospel to the Muslim world, and so he went to study Arabic in Egypt at 25, and he died in Egypt at age 25. He had given up everything, and he never really made it to the mission field, but he had given his entire focus and heart and goal to gospel ministry. And after he died, his family found three words that he had penned in the back of his Bible. The first word he had written when he first went off to Yale, he had said, no reserves, no reserves. And then after they found that same Bible, after he had died in Egypt at 25, they found two more words written in the back right next to no reserves. They found no regrets and no retreats. No reserves, no regrets, no retreats. Now, I tell you that this morning because what you're going to see here in Luke 9, 51 through 62 is this deep um, commitment, whole life, single-minded focus of the Lord Jesus to finish the work that the Father had given him. He had no reserves. He had no regrets. There was no retreat. He set his face steadfastly, Luke will say, to go to Jerusalem, to be crucified, to redeem a people for himself. And then we find there is a call to follow him from Jesus. And Jesus tells us about the costly nature of discipleship. What will it cost us if we are going to be disciples of Jesus? What will it cost you if you are really and truly going to take up your cross and follow him? And you are going to say at the end of your life, I had no reserves, I had no regrets, and I had no retreats. Because that's what Jesus wants you to be able to say at the end of your life, whenever that comes, that he set his face steadfastly to redeem, and then he calls you to steadfastly follow him and to do those things that he wants of you as a disciple. Now notice that Luke gives us these two accounts, and it's in the context of Jesus correcting his disciples. We saw that last week. Uh, The disciples were a mess. They had uh, very little understanding of who Jesus really was. They had lost sight of the cross almost entirely. They were in every way being sidetracked and they were sidestepping where they were supposed to be. And Jesus is taking this opportunity to teach them. He knows that he has to go to the cross. He knows that his time is short with them. And so he enters in on correcting the disciples, instructing them and training them for what he's going to call them to do and to be in the evangelization of the world and the laying of the new covenant church of which we are founded on today. And as he does this, Luke now tells us there is something of a bit of a transition. He has been Uh, setting little children in front of the disciples. He has been correcting misunderstandings that they have. He's been telling them what they've forgotten. He's reminding them about his sufferings. He is reminding them that, that what they've been called to is not, first and foremost, a life of ease and comfort and victory and triumph, that them following him would not, first and foremost, result in praise and success and adulation, and everything else that they had set their hearts on, but that it would result in suffering. Now, that's important, because no sooner has Jesus corrected those misunderstandings that Luke tells us, notice this, verse 51, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face 
to go to Jerusalem. Now, this is one of the greatest statements in the Gospel of Luke. It's one of the most important statements in the Bible. And you might say, why is it that important? I've never noticed that verse. That's not a verse my mom and dad taught me. Why is this such an important verse? Because Jesus could have given up. Jesus could have quit. Jesus could have quit on you. Jesus could have said, you know what? It's not worth it. These disciples are a mess. The people are rejecting me. You're going to see in a minute that the towns in Samaria were rejecting him. And he could have said, conceivably, you are not worth redeeming. And I'm not going to Jerusalem. But what Luke tells us is that Jesus has determined in himself, I am going to do everything the Father did, no matter how difficult, no matter how hard, no matter how painful it will be. Now, this is a prelude to the cup in the garden. Remember when Jesus is in the garden of Gethsemane and and the father is giving him a preview of what is going to happen on the cross and he is so weighed down with um, the weight and the burden of having to become the sin bearer, the one who takes our iniquity, our guilt, our rebellion, our wickedness on himself, the one who's going to take all the punishment on himself. He is so weighed down that he sweats great drops of blood. You and I know nothing of that. We know nothing of what that would have been like, that inner turmoil for the Son of God to say, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful even unto death. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Now, Luke is drawing off the language, and you may not know this, of Isaiah 50. Um, Isaiah 50 is the beginning of the great suffering servant. Uh, section of Isaiah's prophecy. We all know that great portion of it in Isaiah 53, that he would grow up before God as a root, as a tender plant, as a shoot out of dry ground. There was no form or comeliness, no beauty that when we see him, we would desire him. If Jesus walked in here right now, you wouldn't like what he looks like. You wouldn't be like, oh, isn't he wonderful? No, you wouldn't. Isaiah says there was no beauty. There was no outward anything about Jesus that you'd say, oh, I'd really like to hang out with him. Um, He was despised. He was rejected. He was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. As one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised. We did not esteem him, Isaiah says. But surely he has borne our griefs. Surely he has carried our sorrows. The chastisement that brought us peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. And at the very beginning of that prophecy, three chapters earlier, Christ is speaking There in Isaiah 57, and he says, I have set my face like a flint. I will not be disappointed. I will fulfill what the Father has given me to do. I have set my face like a flint. Um, I was thinking about this this week, and I want to read something to you, something I wrote combined with something that an old theologian named Robert Law wrote. Jesus set his face like a flint to go to the cross to die and redeem his people. Nothing could move him from the firm resolve with which he armed himself in order to accomplish that for which he had come into the world. All of the horror that accompanied the prospect of falling under the wrath of God, being made sin and a curse for you, coming under the awful assaults of the power of darkness and having his own disciples forsake him, could not keep him from marching to the place where he was nailed to the tree and cried out, it is finished. Luke is telling us that. He's saying all of those things taken together, Jesus knows about all of them. He knows what he has to do to redeem you and me. 
He knows he has to fall under the wrath of God. He knows he has to be rejected by the Jews and the Gentiles. He knows he has to be forsaken by his own disciples. He knows that he has to take all of the filth of our lives. I want you to think about this. I want you to think of all the filth because you have a filthy heart by nature and so do I. And he takes all that filth on himself. And he knows and it has a psychological weight to it. And it weighs him down. But Luke says he set his face steadfastly to go to Jerusalem. Now, what was it? What was it that drove Jesus forward? Well, there is a mixture both of weakness and strength in the Savior. I don't know if you've ever thought about this. Um, The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 1 says that uh, Christ is the weakness of God. The weakness of God is stronger than men. He calls Jesus the weakness of God. He was weak in the flesh. He, he sweat great drops of blood at the prospect of having to bear our sin. That's weakness. That's weakness. Jesus is weak. If you don't like how that sounds, you don't understand what your sin does to the Savior. Jesus is weak because of our sin. And yet Jesus is supremely strong in his human nature as the Savior resolved to do what he's called to do. Robert Law now says that there was a certain element of submissiveness undergirding Jesus' resolve. Listen to this. He says the submissiveness of Jesus was the yielding not of weakness but of strength. All this passive side of his nature was balanced and completed in equal perfection, all those qualities and dispositions that form the heroic type of character. Law goes on to say about Jesus' resolve here that we see intrepid courage, unwavering resolution, and the fortitude which shrinks from no ordeal, bends to no opposition, but braves and overcomes all that stands between it and its purpose. Why is that important to get? Because if Jesus doesn't do this, we don't get saved. That's why that's important. I want you to understand this morning why Luke 9.51 is such an important verse. Because Luke is essentially saying he determined to save us. No matter how difficult, no matter what it was going to be like, no matter how many obstacles, no matter how awful our sin was being imputed to him and the effect that had on him, And the prospect of falling under the wrath of his father and losing the perfect fellowship that he had with his father from all of eternity when he would cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He said, I'm doing this because I love my own who are in the world and I'm going to redeem them. Um, Notice that Luke tells us this account here in a moment about Uh, Jesus going past uh, the towns of Samaria and the disciples going in there and preaching the gospel and getting rejected. And and notice notice what Luke says. Why why did those towns in Samaria reject him? Why? Notice, Notice what Luke says. He says in verse 53, but the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. Now, There are several ways we can understand that. Uh, The Samaritans hated the Jews. There was racial tension. The Samaritans despised the Jews. The Jews despised the Samaritans. Why would the Samaritans want to help this Jewish man get to Jerusalem? They wouldn't. 
But beyond that, there is sort of a double entendre. Luke is essentially saying there was a divine purpose why those in that uh, part of Samaria didn't help the Savior because he had to go to Jerusalem. He had to press on. Nothing could hinder him from fulfilling the mission that his father had given him. There was absolute resolve in the Lord Jesus, like you've never seen in your life. Um, I had a mentor when I was in seminary, and he said, he said something in passing one day that his, his dad had shared with him, and it, it just really hit me how right he was and how much I needed to learn this. He said that his dad would always tell him, it's incredibly easy to start something. Anybody can start anything. And it's incredibly difficult to see it through to the end. Um, I want you to think about the many times in your life you've started something and then you've quit. Some hobby, some business, some venture, some idea. Maybe it's even been church. You started going for a while and you quit. That's, that's the story of all of us uh, in some regard. It's incredibly easy to start something and it's incredibly hard to see it through to the end. And Luke is saying that Jesus came to see through to the end the greatest thing and the biggest thing and the most important thing and the thing that you and I need more than anything. And praise God that he did. Because if he doesn't make it to Jerusalem and if he's not nailed to the cross, you and I go to hell forever. That's what Luke is saying. If he doesn't make it to the cross, you and I go to hell forever. Now, there's something unique about what Jesus is doing. There's a sense in which he is learning uh, obedience. You know, the writer of Hebrews will talk about Jesus' maturation, that at every age and stage in his life, he is learning greater obedience to his father. And there's a sense where I think Luke is, why, why does Luke tell us this here? Why just out of the blue does he say he set his face to go to Jerusalem? His whole ministry has been heading to Jerusalem. So why tell us at this point in Jesus's journey, in his pilgrimage, why tell us that he has determined at this point to go to Jerusalem. I think the answer is that the Father is asking Jesus every step of the way to learn greater obedience, and it is more and more difficult every step of the way. And every step of the way, he is recommitting himself to the will of God, the one essential will he shared with his Father in the Godhead. He is recommitting himself and learning greater and greater obedience. That doesn't denote that there was any sin in Jesus. It's saying that he was growing, he was maturing, he was learning what it is to be pleasing to his father. He is overcoming the hurdles that are set in his way at every turn, and he is teaching us what a heroic redeemer looks like. He set his face like a flint. Nothing would stop him. Now, if you're not astonished by that, it's because you don't understand how hard the work of redemption was for Jesus. If you're not absolutely astonished by this, it's because you don't get what he had to endure because none of us could have done it. And the disciples fall asleep in the garden. They can't even stay awake. Jesus is like, hey, would you pray with me for an hour? They're like, nah, we gotta, we're going over here. Um, incredibly difficult. 30-some years of absolute perfect obedience on the part of the Redeemer. Always realigning himself to the purposes of the Father and pressing over those challenges. Well, what, what does Luke mean when he says, when the days drew near for him to be taken up? 
Um, it could be that he's talking about Jesus being taken up by the hands of men. Uh, it is more likely that Luke is using this in the same way that he does in Acts chapter 1 to talk about Jesus' ascension. He is, he is serving the entirety of what Jesus came into the world to do. He not only came to suffer, he came to rise, he came to ascend, he came to sit on the throne of God, he came to ever live to make intercession for his people, he came to rule and reign, he came to come again and consummate all things to himself. And Luke is looking at the big picture the time was coming for Jesus to be taken up. And, and what awaits him in Jerusalem? What is he going to do in Jerusalem? Phil Riken says, Jerusalem was the city of God's king. It was the place the Messiah went to receive his royal welcome. Jesus made his journey there over many months, leisurely making his way through the towns and villages where he needed to preach the gospel. What did Jesus do when he got there? In Jerusalem, he corrected the religious leaders for corrupting the temple. And rejecting his authority. In Jerusalem, he taught his last parables. In Jerusalem, he prophesied the destruction of the temple, the overthrow of the city, and the end of the world. And in Jerusalem, he celebrated his last Passover supper with his disciples. Riken says, Jerusalem was the city where many prophets had gone to die. Jesus said that, that Jerusalem had killed their prophets. It was not a safe place for Jesus. By going up to Jerusalem, he was going to the most dangerous place he could go. Jerusalem was the city where many prophets had gone to die. Thus, for Jesus to go there was to face mortal danger. In Jerusalem, people plotted against him. In Jerusalem, he was betrayed with a kiss, arrested by the temple police, abused by soldiers. In Jerusalem, Jesus was brought before the Jews on false charges, taken to Pilate the governor, and then to Herod the king before being sent back to Pilate. In Jerusalem, an angry mob called for his crucifixion until finally the governor gave in to their violent demands. In Jerusalem, his disciples left him. And in Jerusalem, Jesus was stripped naked and nailed to a cursed tree. In Jerusalem, he was dead and buried. Now, all of that, is bound up in him saying, I must go to Jerusalem. He set his face to go to the most dangerous place, the place that would cost him the most for our redemption. There is something unique here, as I've noted already, and what we should take away from this is that we are called to fall on our faces before Jesus and to praise him for his resolve and his commitment. That's the only response initially that we should make to this. We should get on our faces and we should say thank you for not wavering from the work of redemption. Thank you for going all the way to the cross for me. Thank you for crying out, it is finished. Thank you for finishing the work of redemption. Thank you for bearing the wrath for me. But there is also a sense in which what Luke is doing is coupling this to Jesus' own call to weigh the cost of discipleship. You know, it would be too easy to walk away and say, isn't that great? Isn't that wonderful what Jesus did? Be very easy. A lot of people do this. A lot of people sit in churches and, isn't that great? Isn't that wonderful what Jesus did? So great. And they won't do a single thing in following him. They may sit there, they may give a little money, they may talk a lot about religion, but they will not take up the cross and follow Jesus. They will not go where he wants them to go. They will not be able to say at the end of their life, no reserves, no regrets, no retreats. 
And so we have this very difficult section. We have a section in which James and John are wrestling with what it means to be a disciple when the world around us is rejecting the Christian gospel, when the world is is, uh, heaping scorn on us for the gospel. How are we supposed to respond? The first thing that Luke tells us here in this account is that we are to guard our own spirits. There is a very real danger for you and I to start following Jesus and to have lots of zeal and to have lots of convictions and to think that what we're doing is biblically sanctioned and the way that we respond to the unbelieving world is because we're right and we have justice and truth and and the world doesn't and we can have spirits just like James and John who think they're doing something noble in the cause of Christ. They think they're serving him with this extraordinary zeal. They think that they're sort of the new Elijah and Elisha. I want you to think about this. Um, They had been up on the mountain just before this, the Mount of Transfiguration. They had seen Elijah and Moses appear with Jesus in glory. And no doubt their minds are ruminating on what all that means and everything the Bible taught about Elijah. And you remember the account in 1 Kings 19 where Elijah is being pursued by Ahab and he's up on the side of a hill. And every time the king sends 50 men, Elijah prays and fire comes down and burns them up. It's one of those awesome accounts in scripture. Super awesome. Three times. Then they send 100 people and he prays and fire comes down and burns them up. And they're thinking, well, maybe... Maybe that's what we're supposed to do. These towns have rejected the Savior. They haven't made a place for him. They haven't welcomed him into their homes. They've said, we want nothing to do with him. And so they, they say, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven? Now, in, in the other gospel records, Jesus will tell us what he rebukes them with. He'll say, you don't know what manner of spirit you are. You don't know what spirit's in you right now. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy lives but to save lives. So Jesus's resolve to go to Jerusalem was to save and to redeem. Now what's interesting and important for us to remember is that in chapter 10, just after this, when Jesus sends the disciples out among the cities of Israel and they reject Jesus, he says it's going to be better for Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment, then it will be for all these churchy people who reject me. That's what he says. He says it will be better for Sodom and Gomorrah. God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah with fire. So there is a day of judgment coming. It's going to be worse for people who have heard the gospel repeatedly and who have not trusted in Jesus than it will be for those cities that never heard. Um, And yet here at this moment, Jesus is teaching us that he came to save, that today is the day of salvation, and that he's longing for the salvation of the world, and he wants us to long for the salvation of the world, and he wants us to have compassionate hearts, and when people harm us, and they malign us, and they slander us, he says, don't revile in return, don't threaten when you're persecuted, bless those who persecute you, do good for those that oppress you, pray for those, how contrary to everything we get when we fill our minds with Fox News and CNN all the time. That's not Christianity. Please know, a baptized CNN and a baptized Fox News are not Christianity. What Jesus teaches in his word is vastly different 
than almost everything we are being told every day by the world around us. How we ought to respond to things. How we ought to fight for my right. Jesus says you don't know what manner of spirit is in you. Um, That's the first lesson about discipleship. If we're going to count the cost of following Jesus, then we have to know it will mean suffering for us. And when we suffer at the hands of the world, when we're rejected by men and women who hate the Christ that we love, we have to respond with compassion and prayer and heartfelt desire for their redemption. That is an absolute command from Jesus. That's not, that's not some... This is not a book on a Christian bookstore written by some author today. This is Jesus saying, you don't know what manner of spirit you're of. Count the cost. Don't let misplaced zeal enter into the driver's seat. Well, then we have an even more difficult section here at the end of this account. Notice verses 57 to 62. We have three accounts in which Jesus is either asked by someone if they could follow him or he calls others to follow him. And, and this, and I want to say this this morning, this is one of the most difficult portions of scripture in the Bible, and we could do several things if we're not careful. The first thing we could do is we could try to find an explanation that makes us more comfortable with what Jesus says, and then don't get the rough edges of what he's actually teaching. So... It would be possible for us to go in here and look at these three accounts. The first one, notice, as they're going down the road, someone says, I'll follow you wherever you go. That seems like a good thing, right? I mean, if if somebody came in today and they, they weren't a professing Christian, they're like, I will follow Jesus wherever he goes. We'd be like, yes, we'd be thrilled. We'd be writing friends and tweeting about it and telling everybody how awesome it was. And Jesus is like, you don't get it. Like, I'm tired like an animal that's traveling through this world and has no home. Are you ready for that? Are you ready for that? Are you ready to follow a Christ that was homeless? And are you ready for that sort of weary, difficult life? Because that's what Jesus is saying. Now, we could say, well, I don't know. I don't know if that's what Jesus is saying. I think maybe he's just saying, look, you know, I don't have a really nice house for you to stay in with me right now. And we can soften it. No, he's saying, are you willing? Are you willing to have the commitment he had in order to redeem you in following him? That's what he's saying. Are you willing to have that kind of resolve? Now, this is not meant to be a feel-good sermon. As I'm reading this, I'm like, I don't know. And if you're not feeling that, there is something deeply wrong in your soul. Because I don't think any of us have in the back of our Bibles and written on our lives, no regrets, no retreats, no reserves, the way William Borden did. Jesus first says that don't love comfort because you can't love comfort and be a committed disciple. You can't. Absolutely impossible. It doesn't matter how long you've been in church. If you want to live a life of comfort, you are not following Jesus in a committed way. That's it. That's the cut. That's the hard edge. There's no other way to say that. Number two, notice now Jesus goes and he calls a man 
to follow him in verse 59 to another. He said, follow me. But he said, let me first go and bury my father. Now, Jesus's response here sounds like the most insensitive and cruel thing you could ever say to someone. If you came to me and we were doing some sort of outreach and your parent had died and I said, you know what, that can wait. I'm sure you would slander me to all your friends. But when Jesus does it, we don't seem to have a problem with it because I think we try to justify what he's actually saying. Now, it's possible, it's possible what this man is actually asking. His father had not yet died. He's trying to throw under pretense of caring for his parents, which is one of God's Ten Commandments. Honor your father and mother. He is delaying following Jesus. And he's saying, well, after I've spent enough time with my family, I'll do that. I think that's actually what this man is saying. His father had not yet died. He is giving lip service to Jesus. He's saying, that's first, you're second. And I'm going to say this this morning. If your life says, this is first, Jesus is second, you are not a committed disciple of Jesus. My boys had an athletic instructor who a number of years ago was trying to incorporate philosophy into his teaching of them, much to my chagrin. And um, it came to our attention that um, he had said to our sons and the class, you respect yourself first. And one of the children in that class said, but what about God? He said, well, you can put God second. Needless to say, we yanked our children out immediately, and I would hope you would do the same thing. Um, and I talked to him and I said, look, here's why that's an issue. That's idolatry. You know, if I put myself over God, I'm an idol. That's idolatry. You're worshiping yourself. God says you shall have no other gods before me. Jesus is God. Jesus is saying, I am before your family. I am more important than your father and mother and children. I am more important. And if you don't get that, you're not really my committed disciple. Here's the irony. Because if you're thinking, man, Jesus sounds really harsh right now. This is the same Jesus who, after Peter follows him, goes into Peter's home and heals his mother-in-law who has a fever. This man could have said, Lord, I'm ready to follow you. Would you please heal my father? And Jesus would have gone and healed his father. You see, this man has no desire to really follow Jesus. It's all pretense. It's all external. It's all what others think. He has no desire. Now, there is a third and final account. Um, Notice, well, let me just note this. What does Jesus mean when he says, let the dead bury their own dead? He's essentially saying that this man has no spiritual life in him. Those that have spiritual life in them care first and foremost about the things of Christ and know that everything else falls into place when we do that. This man was spiritually dead, and Jesus is saying, let the spiritual spiritually dead deal with the things of this earth that are dead and passing. It's not that he was against burial. Jesus is saying, let those in the world care about the things of the world, but those who have received his grace, who have come to him, care about the things of God and Christ and heaven and eternity. Um, They have no reserves, no regret. They have no retreats. Notice the last 
account, he says to another uh, to follow him. In verse 61, he says, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me say farewell to those in my home. Now, there's something very interesting. If you knew the culture of this day, you would know that whenever someone went on a long journey, they would oftentimes spend weeks and months having these farewell parties with their family. Uh, This is not just a little, hey, let me just go say farewell. Um, This is this man making an excuse again and saying, he's essentially saying, I'm not really ready. Let me first go do this. Let me first. That's what that man said. Let me first go home and bury my father. Let me first do this. Um, And notice what Jesus says to him in verse 62. No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. You know what's interesting about this? There's a couple things. Back in 1 Kings, when Elijah calls Elisha and he first appears to Elisha, the prophet, uh, the scriptures say that Elisha was out in the field plowing. He was plowing. And he left the plow and he said, I'm coming with you. And he said, let me say goodbye to my family. But that's set forth as a positive example. He leaves the plow. He says goodbye to his family because he is ready and willing to follow God's call for him to be the prophet in Israel that replaces Elijah and to put the kingdom of God first in his life. Here, I think Jesus is alluding to that. And he's saying, it is impossible for someone to really and truly be my disciple and to really and truly be committed to me who starts to follow me, but then looks back at the world and just has that pull and that tug to the world. You know a verse that frightens me? And it should frighten us. Remember Lot's wife. If that doesn't frighten you, um, you don't know your own heart. Remember Lot's wife. She's delivered out of Sodom. And she turns and she looks back because her heart is bound up in the world. You see, what Jesus is teaching is the commitment is entirely built on what's going on in our hearts. <clears throat> you know, there's, there's a reality here where Jesus is calling us to greater and greater obedience in following him, in counting the cost, and being willing to let go of things that we held on so closely and so tightly to. And yet, there's another sense where you and I should read the Bible And while our heart's desire is no regrets, no reserves, no retreats, my life is full of regrets, reserves, and retreats. Um, James says we all stumble in many things. None of us are what we should be. None of us are where we should be. But we press on toward that goal. That's God's word to you this morning. I am going to say that as authoritatively as I can. God, who gives you life and breath and all things, is calling you to press on with the resolve and the commitment that Jesus has to put his kingdom first, to put Christ first, not your family, not your job, not your children's education, not your 401k, nothing else in front of Jesus. 
That's God's word to you. That's Jesus saying that this morning. And then when I realize I waver and I falter, I go back to him and I confess my sin. And here's the beautiful thing. Do you know why Jesus didn't want James and John calling fire down from heaven on those cities in Samaria? Because they had forgotten that at the very beginning of his ministry, John the Baptist said there was coming one who would baptize with the spirit and with fire. And I think John is intimating that Jesus was zealous to pour his spirit out in the lives of his people all over the face of the earth and that in order to do that, he would be consumed in the fiery baptism of the wrath of God for us and our wickedness and our failures and our lack of resolve and our lack of commitment and everything else. And we would see that and we would say, my Jesus, I love you and I want you to be first in my life. And even though I fail, you have made atonement for my sin. That's, that's what it looks like to be a committed disciple. Now, a couple of points of application very quickly, very quickly. What does this look like tangibly? A, it looks like you pursuing the Lord Jesus privately in prayer and in his word on a regular basis, apart from being prompted to do that out of guilt. Secondly, it looks like you being committed to the church of Jesus more than to anything else. The golf course, your business, your kids, your vacations, whatever. If we put those things in front of the kingdom of God, we are showing that we are not committed to Jesus. It doesn't matter what you say. I will follow, I will follow, I will follow. And Jesus says, no, you're not. If you put those things in front of gospel ministry, it means giving your time to the service of the gospel. It means partnering with the local church of which you're a part to do kingdom work where God has you. It means giving your money to the kingdom of God. It means confessing your sin to Jesus. It means seeking to love others and build them up in Christ. And it means a thousand other things that his word says. And as we do that, and as we struggle to do it better and better in dependence on his word, in dependence on his spirit, we will see that God is giving us grace, just like Jesus, to grow in deeper and deeper measures of obedience to Christ. Because that's what God wants from us. Just like Jesus pressed on, set his face like a flint to overcome greater obstacles and to accomplish greater measures of obedience to his father. So he is calling us to do that. Now, I'm going to leave you with this this morning. Christ has done everything for us. This is not, hey, get to work. If, if you're hearing get to work, you're missing what I'm saying. This is saying follow the one who has done everything to redeem you, who has interposed his blood, who went to Jerusalem to save you, who poured out everything he had, who gave up his home, who gave up all the comforts of life, who faced all the opposition and persecution to save us. Follow him, no matter the cost. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear this morning what the Spirit says to the church. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, these are very difficult words and yet words that we need to hear. We pray, our God, that you would give us hearts that are 
first and foremost, committed to your son. We pray, our God, that you would forgive us for the many times that we have wavered, for the many times that we have not given ourselves fully to um, Christ and to the work of your kingdom. Lord Jesus, would you intercede for each and every man and woman and boy and girl in this place today? Would it be evident to others that our lives are full of no regret and no reserve and no turning back? Our God, would you give us the grace that we need in your son? Would you build us up in him? Would you draw us with cords of love? Would you show us the cross this morning in a clearer light as we come to the table? We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.